Hello, welcome back to Sermon Notes. Uh, this is Garland. I've got Tad Moore with us. What's up, Tad? Hey. Tad's going to be teaching. He's our <laughs> student ministry uh, director here and a good friend. And as we speak here at the Fellowship Fayetteville campus, there is currently, I'll just state this now, um, some uh, police training going on in our building right outside where we are recording this. And so if you hear, you know, screaming or a loud noise, just know that's some training going on in the background. And uh, we have no idea what might happen, but uh, we turned the corner a minute ago and uh, we, there were there were police officers here. So we're trying to uh, sneak away to record this. But uh, welcome back to Sermon Notes. Uh, Tad, we are three weeks into a four week uh, kind of glimpse into the book of Esther. And uh, I've we've talked about this before. I really like the story. Oh, I think well, it's just really true. fun. Yeah. So you're going to be walking through many chapters. You got a lot to cover you're like five through eight. Yeah. Give us the story. Where's the, where's it going this week and uh, kind of help catch the, uh, the sermon I was listening up. Yeah. So if you've been following along the, where we landed last week, Esther finally decides I'm going to reveal that I'm, I am Jewish and I'm going to risk everything to save my people. The, the famous line, if I perish, I perish. And she sends Mordecai off to instruct her people to fast on her behalf and to prepare themselves. Uh, and then what follows, picking up in chapter five, is is kind of like the fun, um, I don't know, it's almost like, here's the strategy. Like, here's what they came up with as far as how they're going to accomplish this. She doesn't just barge into the king and and come right out and say it. She's actually really tactful, very clever. And I think that, that I don't know if her and Mordecai thought of this plan together or if she, she's just very prudent and, and wise and comes up with this. But... Uh, it starts off, uh, it happens on the third day. She goes before the king in her royal attire, and kind of the big climactic moment, is he going to allow her to approach, or is he is he going to send her away, and potentially uh, is she going to face consequences for approaching the king? And yet it says that he has favor upon her, and it extends the golden scepter as she approaches, and out of this just he's pleased with Esther, and he offers up to half my kingdom, what do you want? Uh, and this is where you think she would just go ahead and come right out and say it. But instead, she's really clever. And she says, I want you to come to my house tonight for a drinking party. And I want you to bring Haman. Uh, and then I'll tell you what my request is. And so the king says, let it happen. Uh, he sends for Haman. They both go and they, they, they party at Esther's, I guess. And then he says again, what do you want? What's your request up to half my kingdom? Which is just kind of a... Uh, um, an exaggeration, I guess. Uh, he, she probably couldn't have actually gotten up at the kingdom. You kind of see a similar thing with Herod in uh, in the Gospels where he says it to his daughter-in-law, right? Um, she says, I'll tell you tomorrow. Come back again tomorrow for another party, and then I'll tell you my request. And so he says, yes. Haman leaves. He's all gassed up, feeling super excited. I'm, I'm the man. I got invited over to Esther's. But on his way home, he sees Mordecai, who fails to stand up and show him the respect he's due, and he is just ticked. So he goes home and he starts bragging to all of his family that he's got everything figured out, but he's so ticked off at Mordecai and his wife and friends say, why don't you go back to the king and just have him executed? Tell the king you want Mordecai killed and we'll set up a giant stake in the front yard and you can skewer him on it and execute him in front of everybody and shame him. Uh, so he's like, yeah. So the next morning he goes to do that. Uh, but right in the middle of this story, this is the huge pivot point. For whatever reason, even though he probably ought to be passed out drunk from how much we've seen that Xerxes just likes to drink. The dude likes to drink. He yeah. likes to drink in this. And it's it's kind of almost comically mentioned every time he's on stage in this in this story. Uh, but for whatever reason, he cannot sleep. He has one of his scribes come and read to him stories. And it just so happens, 
very ironically, that the, the account of Mordecai exposing the assassins and saving the king's life is read, and he suddenly, for whatever reason, is moved with gratitude, and he wants to thank Mordecai, and he begins thinking, how should I thank a person? Can we just know, by the way, that's back from chapter two, the end of chapter yeah. two. It's really brilliant storytelling. Yes, it's Chapter so two ends, and so it's clever. got this, He it was recorded in the king's records, yeah, yeah. and then it goes don't, away. Don't the scene moves over, and then you don't even... It's like, whatever happened to that? And here we go. Now we're in and chapter six, and it's like, read for me, scribe. Yeah. I can't sleep. And it just so happens that thing that was kind of left on a dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And we keep noting in sermon notes. I hope we note it again on Sunday. It's just really it's just a great really story. story. And yeah. so just read at least You want to kind of dive in and read it. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. I mean, so it's, 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 this is where I think the story is so funny. And like the comedy of Esther is really on display in this. Uh, Haman strolls up to the king about to say, I want Mordecai killed, but the king cuts him off and says, what should the king do to show his gratitude to someone in whom he's well-pleased? And of course, Haman thinks he's talking about him because he's selfish, arrogant Haman. Uh, and he, he describes this opulent parade, put me on the king's horse, or put the man on the king's horse and let him wear the king's clothes. Like, elevate this person to your status. And it's really silly. It's like, so yeah. exaggerated. It's so funny. And then the king goes, that sounds like a great idea. Go do that for Mordecai, the very person that Haman wanted to come and have executed. And now he has to parade him through the streets, and everybody's excited. He goes home. Even his family now totally has changed their tune. And they're like, dude, you're going to die. Like, like if if Mordecai is, is a Jewish person and this stuff's happening, you are going to fall before him. They've completely changed their tune. Not very good family. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, he gets rushed off, though, in the midst of, of pouting about that. He gets ushered off to Esther's second party. At that party, Esther exposes Haman's plot, reveals that she's Jewish. The king is so angry at Haman, he storms out in rage. Uh, Haman falls at Esther's feet, and is, you almost get the picture. He's, like, clutching at her robes, trying to beg her for his life, which is, I think the irony there is really unique. He's now begging a Jew for his own life, and even though he's the one who has plotted to have the entire Jewish people killed. And uh, the king comes in, sees him, uh, misinterprets his his groveling for assaulting the queen and has Haman executed on the very pole that he set up for Mordecai. And so it, it ends with that and everybody, um, and I guess from there, the, the king says that the, the Jews can protect themselves. And by the end of chapter eight, instead of Esther pretending to not be Jewish, concealing her identity to be safe, it says that many of the people across Persia per, tended to be Jews so that they would not have to face the uh, I guess the retaliation of mm -hmm. the Jewish people who are defending themselves now. Mm -hmm. So really clever story. It's, it's perfectly mirrors itself. Um, and it's just really ironic. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to go about the story. And one of the, one of the things we do here on sermon notes is we just kind of ask the questions, you know, we talk about these passages. I mean, you, you and I have talked about this, uh, you know, I bet we've talked about years, Esther for years love, now. Yeah, we, we, we talk about it yep. a lot. Um, we've taught it in college a few years ago. And so, but there's always things that we discuss and go, that's so cool that just don't make mm -hmm. the the sermon because they, you know, we got 30 minutes. And uh, so before I ask that, um, one of the things you could do if you're listening to this and you're just really loving Esther and maybe you're in a small group, maybe you're doing some discipleship with Esther, maybe you're just reading and you're going along with sermon notes because you think it's helpful. Um, try reading the book, but read it 
as a character study. You know, read mm-hmm. it through and watch Esther and just sort of dive in and learn about Esther and then and ask some tough questions. You know, what is going on here? And is this a favorable uh, account about her? What changed? How this adjust? And then go do the same thing with Xerxes. Like even when you were reading that, yet again, Xerxes on in chapter seven, verse seven, uh, he goes to get Haman, and again he's drunk. So yeah, like just again, noting always. those little things, and you're pointing those out for us. But you do that by reading and reading and reading, and then maybe reading with a different different oh, lens. Yeah. Um, yeah, just meditate, like you said, like the character. We we taught Esther a few years back in FSM, and we we kind of did more of a character study and. We talked about Xerxes has everything at the beginning of the book. He's he, he's painted as this this person has everything, and yet we're not we're not given the reason why. But if you're just if as to why he can't sleep that night. But if you think about it, it's even the man that the story is painted that has everything in the world for whatever reason is kept up at night with something. Mm-hmm. And there's something to that. Like it's not satisfying to have all those things. Uh, Haman, you could do the same thing. He he's just conniving, and it always works against him. Mordecai's clever and his, his wisdom. You, you can, the character studies in this book are really awesome. So um, one of the things that we have, uh, we've not noted in the sermon so far, just for lack of time, mm-hmm. and then it's also, uh, we haven't really covered it in sermon notes in detail, and we don't have to go into all the detail here, but most scholars uh, pinpoint the central section of the book of Esther um, that you just uh, articulated, the, the the sleeplessness of the king, as forming what we might say is um, kind of a, a really important central idea that is mirrored around it. Um, I, I, I've been saying this to several of the people I've been talking to. For most of us, the book of Esther, as we think of it, ends in chapter four. It's almost like, yeah, if I perish, I perish. Yeah. Uh, that this amazing thing that Esther and that's that's for such a time as this we go that's what the book's about. It's, but if we actually realize inspiring. there's actually f- five, six, seven, eight, and nine that follow, and when we think of the literary structure of the book, four is not the not crescendo, the yeah. uh, it's not the pinnacle. So orient us to how the book is structured. You don't have to go into great detail here, but help our sermon notes listener get their arms around Esther as a whole. Yeah, um, I'm a super visual person, and so if, 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 you're, if you're like me in that, the way that you could probably best see this is, is take your Esther study book um, that we've got at the church. On page 10, there's a chart that has the chiastic structure, and a chiasm, or the chiastic structure, is just a, it's a literary device that, that parallels structure in order to like call attention to specific things. It would kind of put uh, comparable ideas on, on each side of something in the middle, and it's almost like the... Hebrew literature way of putting something in bright, bold letters. So this is the thing I'm drawing attention to. And by situating it, like sandwiching it between two comparing ideas, whether similar or even contrasting, it's saying this is the thing I want you to pay attention to. And this entire section, three through eight, totally does that. So, uh, for example, like if, if somebody's reading this, you're going to note like in chapter, the, the story begins and ends with feasts, feasts. parties. Feasts then we've got, we've got Haman wanted to be honored and then we got Mordecai honored so the honoring of the, so the flip of that see the is, flip is on the both sides so we're working our way toward the middle so these two yeah. things mirror each other working toward the middle right and we're suggesting that the middle is what that the middle would all come down to the king couldn't sleep and just so happened to be reminded of Mordecai's faithfulness as a servant to expose the assassins and the king's uncharacteristic benevolence towards someone and desire to thank them uh, and, and wanting to celebrate somebody other than himself for once. And I'll, I'll jump to my interpretation of that that I, I think feels on par with what I've read about it, what I think you and I have talked about, is that is so um, 
so out of the ordinary that it makes you scratch your head and think, is this, is this God working in this? Mm-hmm. Is this the God's not mentioned throughout this entire story? We've, we've hopefully repeated that a few times. And yet this is one of those so blatant ironies that you just have to scratch your head and think, okay, somebody's behind the scenes of this story working things towards a better end for his people than, than circumstances would suggest. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, this is like the, the, the darkest part of the story. Um, uh, Esther's life still maybe hangs in the balance, and she's risked everything. And the, the two people that are in power are Xerxes and Haman, who's got this platform to kill all of her people. Like every, we're at the very bottom of the barrel here. This is terrible. And yet, in a, again, like in a very ironic twist of fate, something changes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is where the, the writer of Esther was so clever to put that there and, and not to explicitly say it's God working and his providence over this. But for the the reader who's paying The wise reader, the yeah, wise, the careful the, reader. Yeah, let the careful reader see this, mm-hmm. uh, I think is what they're saying. Yeah, so on page 10 in the book, that's helpful. You could probably Google it. I bet there's uh, uh, yeah. images on, online you, you can uh, see. Uh, uh, the Bible Project is a huge resource we use with students, and their, their um, book overview of Esther perfectly illustrates the chiastic structure of this, and they make it really clear with some really cool illustrations. So I would recommend yeah. just So Google. if you've got a small group and, and you yeah. haven't watched it, maybe Bible pull Project, it up. Bible Esther. Project, type in Esther, and there'll be an overview. Yeah. Um, one thing we need to talk about, and we haven't done it yet because we've been waiting for the latter half of the book, is you know Esther's... It's got some things that make you cringe as you read it. It's got drinking and sex mm-hmm. and violence and deceit. And we haven't talked about the violence yet. <laughs> yeah. And um, help us make sense of this. Like the last half of this book, it gets kind of bloody. And I think for some readers, it just kind of turns us off. And I think we have to remind ourselves that this is this is literature written in a period when you've got a nation that has undergone some great tragedies at the hands of other humans. They found themselves, um, we see this in our modern world when nations invade and they blow up stuff and they destroy stuff and they kill and they steal and they abuse and they rape. Like we're, we're dropping ourselves in a world where the, the our authors are in that experience. And so to 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 tell a story and to repeat a story over and over again in which you know real life atrocities happen um we we just get, we just have to get in that that mindset as we read Esther yeah. and i know in our modern kind of western american sensibilities uh, it can make us a little bit uncomfortable though i, mean, I think i mean and yet to kind of flip the script a little bit we are obsessed with violence as a people we just yeah, that's true. we look at it in our tv like a like being in a, a modern american Actually, we are we are obsessed with violence. Yeah, we love action it. movies. Yeah, it, yeah, it's just we don't we think it's grotesque that it happens for real, but we would love to play act it out and watch it on TV and get gratuitous with it even at times. Um, and we're probably desensitized to violence a little bit. So there's maybe a little. I mean, I'll be honest. I I feel a little hypocritical whenever I feel a little bit like right put, yeah. turned off by the story. Um, but more so, I think is like a it, it feels. Yeah, I'll go here. Of like, a, it feels contradictory to what we see Jesus teach about violence in the New Testament, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I guess what you're saying is, is, is important. Of we're reading something that's historically well before then, um, where I don't know, it hasn't been made as clear that God intends for His people to turn the other cheek yeah, and, think, and to to not use violence as the first resort. Yeah, one of the things we're gonna have to wrestle through in uh, stories like this, and, and you know, especially toward the end of the book, it's gonna get even more violent. Is um, when we think about the God of Scripture, 
Uh, I was actually at a Bible study this morning talking about this. Um, it's very convenient for most of us who've experienced, you know, virtually little if zero real atrocities or injustices um, to to see stories like this and go, oh, that's just off-putting. Mm. But for those that have faced real injustice and faced real atrocity, the idea that there would be a God who ultimately is responsible to bring justice in this world. And one of the comments that this exile literature will make, we'll see the same thing in Daniel, we'll see the same thing in many New Testament passages, including the book of Revelation, is world powers, world empires that uh, amass their power their uh, power and pride and arrogance and treating humans like commodities, uh, empires that uh, assert themselves as as almost godlike in their status, that force nations to uh, to to get in bed with them in a sense, to to trade, to do war, all that stuff. That God, God's not. They're not going to go um, unmet, um, and we see that. In our world today, when nations rise up and try to treat people like commodities, to take and to assert their power, we see that and we respond negatively to it. We respond and go, we need, there's gotta be a justice, there's gotta be justice here. And so I think one of the comments that that a book like Esther's making, it's subtle, is, but it's there, is don't get snookered, don't be fooled by the powers in the world. They fool you into thinking that, um, look, Xerxes is so, this is awesome, this is the good life, and yet I think you're supposed to, see behind the curtain and go, this is going to ultimately well, crumble. A, another really perfect illustration of that in this story is the, the, the stake that we sharpen to impale our enemies, so to say, metaphorically, mm-hmm. literally for Haman, the very stake he had sharpened and set up in his yard to shame his enemy is the very thing he ended up on in mm-hmm. the end. And I think that, that that is a snapshot of a huge biblical theme through all of the Old Testament and is explicitly stated in the New Testament is that God opposes the proud and shows grace and favor to the humble. And, and so much through the wisdom literature like the Proverbs that oftentimes the very things that we do to destroy our enemies become our very own downfall. A- again, reading this with the lens of a, of a Christ follower, uh, that's the very thing that we see happen on the cross. And, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just an updated, the cross was a updated version of the Persian stake. Mm-hmm. Instead of impaling somebody on it, they would hang them on it to mm-hmm. let them die more slowly. Uh, but it was still a very shameful display uh, saying that we've beat you. And yet all of the forces of darkness that thought they were triumphing over Jesus by putting him on the cross, by the end of the story, God has flipped it mm-hmm. and he triumphed over the very enemies by defeating them on the cross. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's hilarious that modern Christians wear an ancient torture device called the cross as a, as a symbol of hope and our joy in Christ. It's, it's a, Torture device. If you think about it, it's very, very strange. It's very weird. And, and yet it's the centerpiece of our whole worldview. And, yeah. and it should make a statement to the world of like, mm-hmm. that was the thing that the enemy thought would defeat us and kill God. And yet it's the very thing that he used to overcome them. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a neat picture. Yeah, it's not lost on me that, that Esther and Mordecai, like, they don't go and extend a stake to Haman. Mm-mm. Haman gets to build his own stake his own at stake. the at the very hands of the king that he was trying to impress. Yeah. And there's a, I mean, just think as a reader, as you're going about this, this is what makes for really interesting small groups where you and I have been mm-hmm. spending tons of time just talking about. Interesting. So the it's not that Esther took a sword and stabbed him. No. It's that the very systems he was using to oppress ended up oppressing him. Esther, though, she's... She has integrity. She's we might think we might see it as maybe deceptive, but that would also be us reading between the lines a little bit. Um, Esther's just um, she's 
faithfully trying to do her best in a very hostile culture, but she doesn't take up a sword. Um, and so that's what some of the things that these stories invite you into as a reader. And yet she also, and this would be a, maybe something that gets, uh, you know, I'll share that I'm, I'm still navigating how to, how to put this in the sermon in a good way, but like a, I think this part of the story very el- or very creatively highlights God's providence and his sovereignty over everything and that we can trust that the, I mean, a whole part of what we hope in is that even as dark as the story gets, that God's going to work things together for the good of those who love him. And yet trusting in God's sovereignty also doesn't mean not taking any action. It doesn't make us passive. It doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean just sitting idly by. Um, we were encouraged by a fellow a uh, staff member at Fellowship to read uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Prison um, this past Monday for MLK Day, and, and that was his him expressing his hurt over it's the Christians who are saying, just wait, just wait for justice, it'll all work out, and him saying, we're not, that we have to take some action, and, and actually, that's a good example in modern times of taking nonviolent action, which is kind of what Esther does, of I'm going to risk myself, my security, I'm going to put myself in the way of harm in order to highlight the injustice that's happening around me and trusting in God's sovereignty actually doesn't give us an excuse for passivity and to just hope that everything works out in the end. It should give us a lot of confidence to take direct action towards the the evil of the world. And yet in a way that like Jesus would, where it's self-sacrificing and I will risk everything for the sake of the good of somebody else, the way Jesus has done for me. Mm -hmm. And that is the opposite of passivity. And so difficult. Oh <laughs> so, my God. I know. I say yeah. all of that and I'm yeah, yeah. like, man, that yeah. sounds so expired. Easier said than done, right? And I'm like, uh, man, I, I feel like I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. And, and I think this is, this is why you and I love this story so much because it invites these kinds of conversations and y'all are getting real insight into the behind the scenes on some of this stuff because I can tell you this, Tad ain't even finished this sermon yet. So um, you're getting some real uh, uh, kind of what Sermon Notes is hopefully about, which is really getting behind the scenes. We talk about these passages at length every week because, you know, we're fascinated by the Bible and we want to teach it well. And we know you do as a small group leader, or if you're just studying this, you want to understand it and join us in that journey. So um, we uh, we hope that this has helped walk you through uh, the middle portion of the book of Esther. We look forward to uh, the sermon on Sunday tab and have a great week, everybody.